Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 67. 67. I feel like I always have to repeat the number after you say it for some reason. <laughs> we just I know we can hear you. <laughs> we can hear you. I hear you. Um, dude, last night was a night. Jen, it was a night. <laughs> are you okay, Sally? I am okay. Sally, so- are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> are you okay, Sally? Sally, Sally are you okay? Uh <laughs> So Jen and I did a show last night at Pont City Market, which is a place uh, in Atlanta. Door, <laughs> socially distant, socially distant, with our masks on. Um, and Jen and I, we did our, we both did our sets. We were sitting there just like watching the comedy show, the rest of the comedians. We were being uh, supportive, great comedian friends. And all of a sudden I'm like, I feel like something is like prickling my pants. Prickling my pants, prickling my back of my legs. <laughs> and then I'm just like sitting there like trying to be cool and being like, I, like nothing is in my – and then I stand up and I turn on my flashlight and there is a fucking swarm of red ants all like just where I am, not where Jen is, sitting right next to me. I thought uh, she was looking for something. And you were I like, did like, you lose your keys? I was like, <laughs> I fucking got attacked by ants. I had – they had gotten in my pants, under my shirt. Oh, my God. Uh, like, I all got home and I had – I was like, I have to go. I am so itchy. Like, I had ant bites, like, all over my back, on my stomach, uh. on my legs. It was awful. So, <laughs> me, I got home. I just, like, showered. I was just, like, kept feeling – Ants everywhere. I took Benadryl. You literally had ants in your pants. I literally had ants in my pants. I was like, what the fuck, man? (laughs) Dude, did (gasps) the Benadryl help you sleep good? Did you get a good night's sleep? Oh, my God. I slept like a log. It's the best. It was great. (laughs) It was a little hard to wake up and do pre-K this morning. (laughs) Oh, no. Otherwise, it was great. I was like, oh, "Oh, this is like a nice night of sleep. I forgot. (laughs) Dude, I'm so sorry you got attacked. It was so crazy because I was like, It should have been me. It should have been me. You know what? That's what I was saying. If I would have been sitting one one square over, it would have been me. It would have been you. Yeah, it was just – I was sitting on, like, the crack. I mean, because we were outside. There was this kind of, like, amphitheater-ish place. And I, it just – it felt made me feel like I was crazy because I couldn't see anything. And I was like, there's no way. <laughs> there are ants. I just thought I was like, you know, sometimes you just get, like, little pins and needles. And I was like, I don't know what's happening. I got into the doctor uh, yesterday and, like, had some blood drawn and had a flu shot. So I was like, maybe I'm just feeling, like, weird from that. Nope, it was fucking no. ants in my pants. So God anyway. damn it. <laughs> and then, I, yeah, I just kind of like took off. Like, Jim was like, are you okay? I was like, I gotta go. I gotta go. And I was like, Sally just doesn't want to stay and watch everybody's sets. I get it. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Uh, it's like, ants in my pants. Uh, <laughs> I gotta go. Um, but anyway, but it was fun. It was fun to see you do comedy. Jim was so funny. She had lots of new jokes. And you were great. so funny. Um and uh and yeah it was, it was it was fun to do comedy with you as much as I was bitching about it beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, we had you were bitching about it because it was pouring raining, and none of us wanted to be out in the pouring rain. But it, the skies opened up uh, and cleared up literally like minute the show was supposed to start. So I know we were just sitting good. in a car like, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I know. like that's why it's my process. That's my process before every show is that I just I shit on the show. I shit on like I hate doing comedy. I hate all the people. And then as soon as I get out there, I'm like, this is where I'm meant to be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just I it's like my it's my process, you know, it's just yeah. like, I'm a real negative asshole to be around before a show. <laughs> a real sad Sally. A real sad sack Sally. All right. Let's get into <laughs> some quickies. Let's do it. Okay, I'm going to start this week. Unless you've been living under a rock, you probably know what Tiger King is, right? Tiger King kind of swept the pandemic. It was a big, big deal on Netflix. I do know of Tiger King. I have you didn't not watched Tiger King. Oh, okay. So, but I think I know the, the broad strokes. You know, okay. So uh, you guys all know who Carol Baskin is. Right, she's going to be on Dancing with the Stars. Right, 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 and that's what this article is about. Oh, so okay, this is yeah. article Sorry. is from no, but it's more than it's more than that, Sally. <laughs> it's more than that. Uh, this is an article from People.com written by Natalie Stone, and this is about how okay, so Carol Baskin, if you don't know from the um, documentary Tiger King, is accused of it is hinted at that she was married. Back in the 90s, she was married to a, a very wealthy millionaire and animal sanctuary owner whose name was Don Lewis, and he mysteriously disappeared. And it was when he was, if I remember correctly in the documentary, it's been months now since I've seen it, and I don't even know what day <laughs> it is anymore. He was about to leave her and kind of expose the fact that Carol Baskin had, had some dirty practices in her um animal cat rescue business uh-huh. but then he mysteriously disappeared and he's ne- was never seen from again he disappeared in 1997 and he was later declared dead the time he was missing he was married to Carol Baskin so okay. a lot of people in the documentary very heavily suggest that Carol definitely had something to do with it in yeah. fact the tiger king like wrote a song about the fact that Carol killed her husband and fed him to the tigers. But anyway, (laughs) so now she is, in case you didn't know, she's going, she's one of the celebrities on Dancing with the Stars, which is kind of crazy. So Carol Baskin's late husband's family, Don Lewis's family, have put together a commercial about his disappearance and they aired it during the first episode of Dancing with the Stars. And in, no it's way. called Yeah, it is called Justice for Don Lewis. And in the ad, it's Lewis's family and their family attorney, John M. Phillips, and they ask for tips about his disappearance. And they give the number, which by the way, if you have any tips about the disappearance of John Lewis, <laughs> uh, you can text uh 646-450-6530 or call 1-800-LITIGATE. But the family is offering a $100,000 reward just for information about his whereabouts. And the ad has his three daughters, Gail, Linda, and Donna, asking the public for help. Um, Are they her, not her daughters too or yes, her daughters? No, they're, they're not her daughters. They're just okay. Don's daughters. He was only yeah. – he actually left his first wife – 
their mother for Carol Baskin. Ew, that's a, yeah, that's a mistake. Dirty, dirty. And so there. So can you imagine being his daughters and his family, and this woman that your father left your mother for, and then ultimately and. And then he ultimately disappeared and inherited his estate because he was the he was the money he was the oh. millionaire and there's all this controversy. You think that this person may or may not have killed your father, and now she's a celebrity and she's on Dancing with the Fucking Stars. Yeah, I mean, I, the only thing I really the reason I know about all this is because there were so many like memes about Carol Baskin ki- killing her husband, and but then you have to remember he has a real family and real kids and like. Yeah, they're going through all this and like whatever, you know, I mean, how many years ago this was 20 years ago now and now it's all being brought back up. That's got to be so awful. Yeah, I do love that. they Let's fucking put it on. It's the first episode of Dancing with the Stars. That stupid bitch. Yeah, Carol Baskin, that stupid bitch. Sorry, that was so hard. No, that's exactly – no, I thought you were doing a Tiger King reference because no, that's what the Tiger King would do all the time. <laughs> yes, you need to watch it. You would just be like, Carol Baskin, that fucking bitch, that stupid whore. Uh, Joe Exotic, I guess, was his name. In the last few decades, his disappearance has been a mystery, which I forgot to say before. So he, in case you didn't watch the documentary, on August 18th, 1999, Don Lewis completely vanished without a trace. Deputies found his van abandoned at a nearby airport near where they lived, where he was allegedly planning to take a trip to Costa Rica, but Uh police found no signs of a struggle inside, nor did they find proof that he had ever left the country. So he just completely disappeared and his van was left by the airport. So um, over the last few decades, you know, it's, it's just been um, a cold case or a dead case. And so, but now with the popularity of the Netflix documentary, County Sheriff Chad Cronister from the Hillsboro Sheriff's Department told people, once I saw how popular this Netflix documentary series had become, I'm like, listen, we need to take advantage of this. I just thought, wouldn't it be phenomenal if we could glimmer some type of evidence, an interview, anything that would help us solve this disappearance case? So now, while Carol seems to be taking advantage of her newfound fame, his family is like, well, fine, we're going to do the same thing, and we're going to do it on your fucking show. It's a smart move. It's um, a smart move. I hope they get – I hope they figure it out. I hope this – they are able to have some peace and justice, and and they get that bitch, that get stupid that. dumb bitch, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So allegedly. yeah, hopefully, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly but, she's a stupid bitch. <laughs> yeah, but according to Carol, she says just so that we see both sides of it. She says, "I'm not the person." That I was per- not at all the person I was portrayed in Tucker King. I'm not yeah. the money grubbing, gold digging, murderous person that they portrayed. I am the type of person who will come after any person who is abusing animals. I am relentless. I just won't stop until I find some legal way to make it stop. From that perspective, I think they got me right. Me as a person, that was a total assassination of my character for nothing other than whatever money they could get for selling that to Netflix. You stupid bitch. (laughs) (laughs) So we can Um, all make our own assumptions, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, well, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, well, mine is like a little um, sweeter. My 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 cookie. Okay, um, the yin and the yang, the yin and the yang. So this is from a Washington Post article by Sydney Page, and this is a quickie about love for fellow human beings and for family. So, okay, so Randy Evans, who's a 33-year-old who lives in L.A., went to walk her dog at the beginning of August, and she heard a man who was talking to himself, and he was saying things like, everyone just stares at me, I'm an educated man, but all they see is a person who doesn't have a home and doesn't have anyone to call, and this, like, talk was just breaking her heart, and so she went and she got her boyfriend, John Sazo, and the two of them together approached the man and just simply asked him about his life. And the man, Pedro Reed, said he was happy to talk, but no stranger had ever asked to talk to him. So the couple said they were awed by his his story and the way that he spoke about his life. Reed had left his family home in Charleston, South Carolina, and moved to L.A. in 1999 to live with an aunt. But a year later, he was addicted to drugs and alcohol, and he found himself homeless, and he's been homeless ever since. So he's been on the streets for over 20 years, and he just had given up any hope of change. But he said that the thought of reuniting with my family was always on my mind. And he found talking to the couple was surprisingly easy. He said, John and Randy saw me as more than what everyone else saw me as, just a homeless person living on the streets. They believed in me despite the situation they found me in. And I just, I feel like that's so, just such like a simple thing, but what an impact for a person who's just been dismissed by society to finally have people look at him and listen to him. So the couple gave him a backpack filled with food, water, and other daily essentials, but they wanted to do more. So Randy went on Facebook and she asked for donations to help cover the costs of a night or two in a hotel so Pedro could get cleaned up, have a few hot meals, get some proper rest. And in only 72 hours, the couple had raised $6,500 and they were able to pay for Reed's stay at the hotel for a week, get him a cell phone and buy him some new clothes. And it was his first time staying in a hotel since he left home or staying in a room by himself. And he had no way of contacting his his family members. And over the years, he says, I lost contact with them too. I didn't know where anybody was. And I had no idea that anybody was looking for me. And I was all alone. But still, he said, I read the newspaper every day. I could get my hands on it. Being an avid reader has enabled me to speak articulately. Randy and John decided that they wanted to help Pedro find his family. So he gave them the names of some some of his relatives and they started researching. And finally, they got a hold of someone who was his uncle's ex-wife. And then a few days later, Pedro's uncle, Pierre Grant, called the couple directly and he said, for over 20 years, we've been praying and believing that one day we would find him and the day <gasps> finally came. This is a miracle. So Pierre booked a flight from Charleston to to LA to pick up Pedro and his cousin Mia flew out from Atlanta. And parenthetically, because this is during COVID times, everyone tested negative before the reunion. Oh, Um, good, good. And Mia told the Washington Post, she said, Randy and John are God sent people. I don't have the words for the heart they have to stop and speak to him and then find us. So finally, on August 7th, Pedro was face to face with his family He was flooded with emotion. His eyes filled with tears as he wrapped his arms around his cousin and his uncle. Um, They all went to dinner with Randy and John. And then the next morning, Pedro, Mia, and Pierre all got in a car and drove back to Charleston. And Pedro is now living there with his aunt and uncle. 
And he's even back in touch with his mom, Deborah Reed. She lives in Texas, but she's been speaking with him regularly on the phone. And she says, he's still my, he's still my same son. He's still my same Pedro. And she's making plans to travel as soon as it's safe to have a big family celebration. And so Pedro's plans now are to get, he wants to further his education and get a job and to help other people who are homeless. And he says, he'll never forget the couple who stopped to listen to him. He says, their names will be forever etched in my heart. I'm indescribably thankful that they cared enough to get me home. Oh my God, I love that story. Isn't that nice? Hey, Sally. Yeah, Jen. Are you ready for a not nice story? <laughs> I am ready for a not nice story. All right. I'm feeling the yin sassy and yang. today. Okay. <laughs> my story is the crazy story for this week. And this story came from um, Wikipedia. And an episode of a show called Dates from Hell. <laughs> this is new. Dates from Hell. I wish we had like a. <laughs> oh, like, can you so do something I, with that? Uh, Jen, I don't think so. <laughs> can I give you more jobs in editing to do? Okay. In the fall of 2008 in Edmonton, Canada. Do you know it? I've heard of it. I've never been. Never been to Edmonton. Me neither. I was supposed to go to Canada for my birthday, but COVID. I was supposed to be there too. You were supposed to be there too. (laughs) Um, So, but hey, luckily, Um, I still have a plane ticket to Canada that I can use for up to a year. So, I will be there at some point. (laughs) I'll go with you. Deal. Deal. Okay. In the fall of 2008 in Edmonton, Canada, uh, 33-year-old Jill Tetro was newly divorced and he decided that he was going to start looking for love again. And just like many people, he thought that he would try his luck with an online dating service. So I believe that the service that he used was Plenty of Fish. They don't say on the show, but then when in Wikipedia, they referred to Plenty of Fish. But he finds a beautiful blonde woman and her uh, who's about his age and her name is Sheena and she was logged on at the same time that he was so he was like oh I'll just start chatting with her so he mm-hmm. just reached out to her and they started talking and the two of them just got along instantly and you know she Sheena told him that you know she was new to the city and she didn't normally do online dating but she just thought that she would do it just to take a chance at meeting new people and he was like, I don't normally do this either. You know, I'm really divorced. I'm trying to meet people. But then they decided when they were talking that night that they would meet up for dinner in a movie that following Friday. Jill was stoked. You know, he was about to go on a date with this, like, really beautiful woman. He was trying to find more information about her. You know, mm. he just wanted to know, like, her last name and stuff. But um, she told him... <laughs> That uh, she didn't really like to give out a lot of information about herself because she had had stalkers in the past. And he was uh-huh. like, oh, I understand. Okay. Makes sense. So uh, he didn't really push it that she didn't wasn't didn't really reveal that much information about herself. But she told him to come pick him up at her house. And what's weird is that she didn't give an, a, an address so much as she gave directions. Like she said, go to this place, third house on the right, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh, but didn't I say an address. Do that. I'm like, just I know. give me your address. I don't, I don't want your directions. <laughs> I like know. Two streets and then take a – and then you'll see uh, 
a shining star, follow that for a while. <laughs> I just hate when people ask me for directions now. I'm like, fucking mom, Google it. <laughs> so that's my mom. She always is like, just send me the directions and I'll, uh, I'm like, no mom, I'm not sending you anything. You I have know, a I see phone, where you get you it. You have a fancy <laughs> GPS on your car. You drive a Subaru. <laughs> Last you night I asked Jen, there. I was like, I was like, can you drop me a pen? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to happen. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, you pen. did. I know. I was like, is this how it works? <laughs> I did, did drop you a pen. You did um, drop me a pen. <laughs> so, so she didn't give him an address, but she told him how to get to our house and said that when um, you get there, go through the garage. That's how you get to the back doors. You go through the garage and then you can just knock on the door there and I'll be waiting for you or whatever. So um, he went to her house and he went through the garage. He went through the back door, like she said, but when he got in the garage, he calls out for Sheena, you know, like wondering where she is and he doesn't see her, but instead he sees a man with a black and gold hockey mask. Oh, no. Yes. And then all of a sudden, the man reaches out with a stun gun and starts tasing him in the chest. No. So, yeah. So he's just completely freaking out and trying to make sense of, like, what the fuck is happening right now. Like, yeah. he's getting tasered and he doesn't know like is Sheena inside is she dead or do I need to go save her what is going on here like he just I mean can you imagine trying to wrap your head around a situation like that right you're like and, I'm going for a hot date and then yeah <sighs> nightmare and, yeah and then you're literally tased so yeah. you're like what the fuck so he is trying to figure out if he needs to go inside and try to save Sheena. And then all of a sudden the man takes out a gun and he points it at him and he orders him to get down on the ground. And this is uh, when Jill thought like, oh my God, he's going to kill me, you know? So he did exactly what the man told him to do, um, which was he told him to, the man told him to get down on the ground and then the man duct taped his eyes and his mouth and uh, Jill was like begging for his life, like, please, please, please don't kill me, you know. Um, but yeah. then um, right when he thinks like that, this is it, this is the end for me, then he decides that he's got to fight. He's got to fight for his life and not just do whatever this guy says. So he decides to fight back and he jumped up and he tried to take the gun from this man. And that's when he realized that the gun was a fake it was a fake oh. gun. So then Jill sees, sees a pair of handcuffs in the garage, and you would think that he was like, and then he handcuffed him, but he didn't. He no. took the <laughs> handcuffs and he put them around his fist and then to make like a metal fist and then yeah. just started punching the man in the face. But the th- he was just hitting the hockey mask, so it wasn't really doing anything. But he, So then he sees that the garage door is still slightly open at the bottom, and he decides that he's going to make a run for it. So he runs through the garage, but then as soon as he got outside, he fell onto the floor, and the man in the hockey mask then comes out of the garage, grabs – like out of a horror movie, yeah. grabs his legs and starts pulling him back into the garage – But when the man had to let go of his leg for a second to lift the garage, that's when Jill took off running. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So when he he runs down to the end of the driveway 
And that's and he sees he runs into a couple that's out for a walk, and he's like, "Oh my god, this man! He's attacking me!" And the couple's like, "What?" And then as he's telling, like, freaking out and telling them this man is attacking me and I need help, all of a sudden the guy walks up behind him, so the couple sees the man, like Jill, freaking out. <gasps> And then sees the man in the hockey mask behind them. And the couple are just like, peace. So they just leave. And then the man in the hockey mask was spooked because he saw this couple, you know, so he just ran back into the garage. So he runs back into the garage and the couple runs off and Jill's just standing there like, what the fuck? And he doesn't know (laughs) if Sheena is in the house or not, but he thought like the best thing that he could do at that moment was to just jump into his truck and drive home. Right. You know, he's he's free. He can go. So when he goes home and he's like, you know, completely shooken up, he goes onto his computer to look at Sheena's profile. And when he goes on to access her file, he sees that her profile was completely deleted. And then, which apparently on this site, when you delete your profile, then all of your past messages are deleted too. So he lost all of the the communication oh. that they had had. Yeah. So, um, but here's the thing that's crazy is that he doesn't call the police. Why? He doesn't Did call you the police. Nobody would believe him. He was embarrassed. Oh my god. He didn't call the yeah. police or report the attack or report the attack to anybody. He only told a few close friends what happened to him, but he just wanted to like pretend the whole thing never happened. So he tries to put the whole thing behind him. And just and he starts like each day, you know, he moves on a little bit more. He tries not to think about it. But then a month later, one of his friends that he told about the attack called him and said, was like, turn on the news. Because there was a story on the news that sounded eerily similar to the whole thing that he had just been through. On the news, they were talking about that there was a man named Johnny Altinger who was also from Edmonton, who was reported missing and assumed as murdered after meeting up with a woman from a dating site. Yeah. And the reason that they assumed that he was murdered was because they had this suspect in question. And um, apparently the suspect had written a diary on his computer, which the police had found. And on the diary, he detailed how he catfished this man online and lured him into his garage where he then murdered and dismembered his body. The fuck, man? Oh, my God. Then he also detailed about how he had attempted to do this once before, but the victim had escaped. So on the news, they were calling for the victim to come forward. And Jill was like, holy shit, I think that's me. And then when he sees on screen that they show the black and gold hockey mask, mm-hmm. he was like, oh, my God, that's definitely me. Like, that, that, that I need to go to yeah. the police. And then they, they even showed a picture that, of the suspect. And he said that when he saw his eyes, he, he was completely speechless because he knew that those that was the man. So he immediately goes to the police and tells them exactly what happened to him. And it almost, like, word for word matched what the suspect in custody had written about in his laptop diary. And it was almost identical to what they believe happened to Johnny Altlinger. So Johnny Altlinger was, um, Altinger, I keep saying Altinger, Altinger was a 38-year-old man who worked at an oil field equipment manufacturer. 
And on October 10th, 2008, um, Johnny told his friends that he was going to meet a woman that he had been chatting with on online on, on Plenty of Fish. So, and it, this woman's name was Jen. And Johnny told his friends that Jen had told him to meet at his garage, at this garage, which he thought was weird. So he was smart enough to tell his friends that if he went missing, this is where I am. So he gave his friends the directions? Yeah. And so after, but when, so when Johnny went on his date and he never came back, his friends were concerned because they started receiving emails from Johnny, um, Mm. allegedly a Johnny claiming that his date had taken him to an extended vacation in Costa Rica. And then he had also sent work, um, a resignation letter by email, but he didn't give a response to a request. They asked him, okay, well, what's your forwarding address for your final paycheck? And they, he didn't respond. So they thought that that was really weird. And so his friends actually, before even going to the police, they broke into his condo and they found his passport, which meant he didn't go to Costa Rica, right. dirty dishes, and no indication of him having packed for a trip. So that's when they went to the police and they said, go to this address. We think that he's here. So they, so then when the police went to this garage, they were able to identify the home as being owned by 32-year-old Mark Twitchell who was a divorced father of one and aspiring filmmaker. Uh, He was, yeah. So he was born and he was also born in Edmonton, Alberta. He apparently had big dreams of making blockbuster films. He had, he made a prequel, like a fan film prequel to Star Wars. It was called Star Wars Secrets of the Rebellion. And um, it never was released because I'm willing to bet it wasn't very good. Right. And this the ball- is a person like complete delusions. Of, totally. Like, yeah. Oh, you're going to be George Lucas now? Okay. <laughs> and so, um, so he also wanted to make horror movies, namely one movie that he made that was called House of Cards, which was about a serial killer that would lure people who thought that they were meeting an online date no. into a garage to kill him. This is yeah. why you shouldn't trust men who say they're filmmakers. I know. <laughs> Amateur filmmakers. Yeah. So when they – I feel like we've had multiple stories about dirty, dirty amateur filmmakers mm-hmm. on this podcast. So so when they interview Mark, he says that he had never even heard of Jill or Johnny. But when they looked on his hard drive on his computer, they were able to locate a file that was called – SK Confessions, which they think means <laughs> serial killer confessions. Oh, my God. Yeah. And on the first line of the document, it says, this story is based on true events. The names and events were altered slightly to protect the guilty. This is a story of my progression into becoming a serial killer. Like, what a fucking idiot, dude. What a dumb fucking idiot. Like, like just- you can't see me, but I'm just like, through your whole story, I've just been shaking my head. <laughs> Yeah. Nope. Nope. No, no, no. No, I don't want anything to do with this guy. He's God damn. Yeah. And then the whole thing just completely presented an account of um, his uh, like planning and failed first attempt and then successful second attempt to lure a man into his garage and murder him with these uh, using these fake online dating profiles as bait. And then it went into detail talking about like dismembering the body and everything. It was 
yeah, really gross. Another document that was on his laptop, but it actually didn't make its way into evidence for the jury. Um, but there was a, a, another document that was called a profile of a psychopath. And it was a self it was a detailed self-analysis self-analysis of his personality and behavior. So he like wrote this whole thing about how he was a psychopath. They even though they had this diary, if you will, of him talking about what he had done, they worried that they weren't be able to convict him because they still hadn't found Johnny's body. So uh, so they didn't have like an actual proof of murder because they didn't have the body, but they arrested him on October 31st, 2008, Halloween. So he was arrested on Halloween. Um, and during his trial, Mark Twitchell admitted that he killed Johnny Altinger, but he, and he admits that he wrote that whole diary, but he yeah. said that he acted in self-defense. Uh, yeah. So he said that the document is fiction based on fact and that that he didn't plan the death deliberately. It was like he was trying to say that he was just doing this act out, but he wasn't really going to kill him. But then he had to kill him in self-defense. Right. It's crazy. Okay. okay. So <laughs> they did need um, Jill's testimony to you know, just to help with the conviction because it's like another account. He was very embarrassed about the ordeal. You know, that's why he didn't go to the police at first, but he knew that it was the right thing to do to help put this man away. So with both Jill's testimony, and then they were able to find Johnny Altlinger's blood that was found both in Mark Twitchell's garage and his car. So they were able, so without a body, they were, um, able to convict him and they found him guilty of murder. But two years later, he finally told the police where Johnny's body was, which was in a sewer downtown. So he oh. was able to be given a proper burial and his family were able to have closure. But Mark Twitchell is only serving a sentence of 25 years to life. That just sounds crazy to me. And I'm, I don't know if I didn't read anything about this, but I'm willing to guess that maybe his, the lower sentence had to do with him telling them where the body was. Yeah. Like oh, 25 yeah, years to life. I bet they made a deal yeah. so that he would tell them. Ugh. But I hope that he rots in jail for the rest of his life. And um, Jill, of course, is happy to be alive. And he actually wrote a book in 2015, which was a personal account of what happened to him. And it's called The One Who Got Away. So if you oh want to go God. read okay. it. Yeah. That's horrifying. And oh, just the it's just the whole thing is just so sick. I know. And, um, and also, good luck on all your um, online dates this weekend, you guys. You guys, be very <laughs> careful. In, in a public, public place. Meet public. in a public place. Public. Get verifiable information uh, about the person. And how I like, always – I don't want to – I don't want you to know my last name. Just be like, and then I – we cannot meet. And I always like to say, even though I've never online dated myself, this is just my two cents. <laughs> I always like to say, if they're really hot – then probably not. <laughs> probably not. If they're showing you some boobs, 
they're going to show up and have a hockey match. Room. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, if, man. Uh, if you see some tits, you gotta. This guy is the tits. call it quits. <laughs> yeah, call it quits. <laughs> there you go. That's a good one. Oh, all right, you're Maybe better we at get writing there than I am. You're a good writer. <laughs> we had to, really, we just workshop that. That's good, Jen. Um, we did. Okay. All right. Well, let's do my love story. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a love story? Yes. Okay, I got my love story um, from two articles in the New York Times by a writer named C.J. Chivers, who is an amazing writer. One article is called The Fighter, and for that article, he won a Pulitzer Prize, so definitely worth reading. And then the other article is called Love's Road Home, which is also amazing. So um, so thank you, C.J. Chivers, because this is totally from his beautiful writing. Sam Sayata and Ashley Volk's love story is not straightforward. It's not easy, but their struggle and their fight for themselves and their love is kind of what makes this story all the more inspiring. So so Sam Sayata first proposed to Ashley Volk at the Shawnee Correctional Center in 2016, where he was serving a six-year sentence for home invasion. They were sitting across the table from each other. She noticed a loop of dental floss on his ring finger. And she was like, what's what's that? And he said, it's a reminder that when I get out of here, we're going to have a future and I'm going to marry you and we'll have a real life. And Ashley loved Sam. She'd loved him for a very long time, but she also didn't know when he was getting out. At this point, he still had six years on his sentence. He said that maybe he proposed again in 2022 after his sentence was finished And Ashley had waited for him before, and she could see herself doing it again. Because Sam and Ashley had met in sixth grade. They were boyfriend and girlfriend that year, and she said that he was her first kiss on the cheek. But that was also the year that Sam's dad died of cancer. And he had always been very quiet, but none of his friends through that year or Ashley ever saw him cry. And so they worried about what was going on inside. But Sam and Ashley dated on and off throughout junior high and high school. And Sam came from a long line of Marines. His uncle had fought in Vietnam, his grandfather in World War II. And he'd been telling anybody who would listen that he was going to be a Marine since he was in fourth grade. And while they were in high school, Ashley would try to talk him out of enlisting because the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were happening. So the likelihood that if he joined, he would be deployed were pretty high. But when he was a senior in high school, Sam was old enough to sign up online, and he did, and he requested a place in the infantry. Ashley and Sam, once he enlisted, they broke up because he thought it was unfair to leave her waiting while she was while he was gone because he had committed to four years in the Marine Corps. And Sam left for boot camp on the day that he graduated in May of 2008. So in boot camp, it turned out that Sam was a great marksman. And it wasn't something that he'd grown up doing. His family didn't have guns. He'd never hunted. But in this one thing, he was better than everyone else. So his platoon's commander selected him to be a designated marksman. This was from the New York Times article, The Fighter, about this position. So in Afghanistan, he would be called on to do the shooting that would make gunfights stop. Through the lens of a telescopic, telescopic sight, he would also be expected to watch over and protect his platoon, which meant eyeing civilians through crosshairs, one after another, looking for indicators, a partly hidden weapon, the remote detonator of a bomb that might give him a military justification to kill. 
This will require constant commitment to discernment and a disciplined sense of restraint, balanced with a willingness to take others' lives, sometimes in the intimate fashion that could come with an eight-power scope. Even the nickname for the role, Guardian Angel, was freighted with the presumption of unerring perfection and righteous power. So Sam landed in Afghanistan when he was 19 years old, and he had never shot at anything more than a paper target. And you can read a detailed account of what happened there in that article, The Fighter, but suffice to say, he saw and did as part of his job horrible things, including killing a lot of people, including civilians. So he kept a journal of everything he saw and felt while he was there. And on the day he made his first combat kill, he said, it was a great day and one of the worst days I've had so far. Today, I thought my family was going to get a folded flag and a bullshit letter saying what a great Marine I am and shit like that, but I made it. I hope my family recognizes me when I get back, and I hope they understand I've changed, but only through acts of self-preservation. My mind cannot be healed from the horrors of war. I hope they understand. One of his commanders said later that watching Sam evolve from that sweet, innocent kid to the killer he became, the killer we needed him to be, it breaks my heart. So after his deployment from Afghanistan in 2010, he was sent back to Camp Lejeune and he started writing to Ashley. By now she was in college and living in Chicago. And so he moved, uh, he flew to meet her, but she could tell he was trouble, but he wouldn't talk. They spent two nights together uh, the first weekend and, but she said he was totally withdrawn. She said there was no contact, no cuddling, no pillows. He was there, but he was gone. So he went back to Camp Lejeune and continued to periodically visit Ashley. But in the spring of 2011, his unit was shipped out to the Libyan coast. And on his last visit to Chicago, Sam gave Ashley his diary from Afghanistan. He had thought of destroying it, but he decided to entrust it to her. She read the first page and she stopped. She was completely blown away. She said she was like hugging him, telling him I was going to kidnap him and keep him there. But after he was gone, she started reading again. She read every horrific thing. And even though she could see that he was being made to do horrible things, she also knew that she knew that sixth grade boy was in there, you know? And so she wrote him letters to the ship he was on. And for a while he responded, but soon he stopped answering He had started binge drinking anytime he had time off, which wasn't unusual uh, for Marines, especially people who've seen combat. Um, In February of 2012, the battalion returned to Camp Lejeune and his time in the Marine Corps was up. And so he left the service and drove home to Illinois, but he didn't even tell Ashley he was back. He moved back in with his mom and he had a really hard time. He was quiet. He was angry. He'd become an alcoholic, and he spent basically a year at his mom's doing nothing. Like he would drink and play video games in his room, and his mom said sometimes she could hear him hitting a wall. In oh. 2013, Sam's mom was like, "You need, to, we need to get you out of this, and she pushed him to go to college using his GI benefits, and so he went to Illinois State that fall, but he wasn't doing well. He would barely do go to class. He would sleep all day. He would drink all night. And it's pretty obvious in retrospect that he was suffering from PTSD, but he wasn't diagnosed. On Saturday, April 12th of 2014, Sam was invited to a house party about a block from where he lived. And at 10 p.m., he was still home and he opened a bottle of tequila and started pouring shots. But by the time he left for the party, the bottle was almost empty. So at some point of that night, he blacked out. And this was after he got in a fight 
and was kicked out of a party. A friend who had been in the Navy walked him home and told him, like, you have to apologize to those people. And he even asked him, like, do you have PTSD? So Sam tried to call or text the people at the party to apologize. And that was his last memory of the night. And then around 2 a.m., he apparently smashed through the door of an apartment that was just like a, blo- a couple blocks from his where two teaching students lived. He didn't know them. One of the women had a boyfriend who was there who also happened to be a former Marine. The people in the house were woken up by the sound. The guy grabbed a knife and ran downstairs while the girls called 911. And when Sam came into the room, the guy was like, you have to leave. But Sam kept walking. He said he was like a zombie. And the guy showed him the knife and said, you have to leave. And Sam had picked up a frying pan and hit the guy in the head. And they started to fight. Um, Sam grabbed the man's neck and the man stabbed him repeatedly. So Sam woke up in the hospital the next day and thought he had been mugged or struck by a car. He immediately checked himself into a residential substance abuse rehabilitation program at a VA west of Chicago where combat-based PTSD, depressive disorder, and alcohol use disorder were diagnosed. And he found out what had happened. The man wasn't hurt badly, but he did say that it, it, it affected him pretty severely, like emotionally, the guy who, mm-hmm. the other guy in the fight. And as you can imagine, that'd be pretty yeah. awful. So in July of 2014, Sam checked out of the hospital and turned himself in for booking. His lawyer, Hal Jennings, asked prosecutors about a plea to a lesser felony and a sentence of probation. Sam had no previous criminal record. The man he had fought hadn't been seriously hurt. And giving Sam's combat service and apparent PTSD, they thought this was a reasonable request. Here is somebody who fought for our country and is obviously this is part of a larger problem. Can we give him some leniency, get him some treatment? But the prosecutor rejected it. So the case slowly went through the system. Sam remained sober. And in the summer of 2015, Ashley called him. And she had been angry that he cut her off. But he told her, I was hurt, but I'm getting help. And in July of 2015, they met up. Ashley says they immediately fell back in love. They talked, they kissed, they became a couple. And though Sam talked about Afghanistan, he didn't tell her about the break-in or the trial at first. Um, His lawyers kept telling him that it was probably going to go away because they felt like they had a good case. These psychologists examined him. They were like, Sam probably thought he was at his own house. And then when a strange man came up with a knife, that's a huge trigger for somebody who has gone into combat. And they were like, he needs treatment, not jail. But in the end, he was found guilty at the trial and sentenced to the legal min- minimum, a six, which was six years. The judge of the trial said, said that he wished he could give probation, given Sam's service and diagnosis. But because he was found guilty, he had to sentence him to the minimum. So Sam was immediately taken to jail. And from there, he wrote to Ashley, I love you so very much. You're my one and only, and I promise... I love you so, so much, and we will have a life filled with love and happiness. So through the first part of 2016, Sam sat in jail. It was really hard. Um, As you can imagine, bad things happen in jail. You're welcome to read all about them. (laughs) And his team worked on an appeal based on his combat. The writer from the New York Times, who C.J. Chivers, who wrote these articles, actually contacted a former judge in Chicago just for this part of the story to see why Sam hadn't been given a plea deal. Cause he was like, this is part of like what we're trying to do is like get veterans out of the justice system and get them treatment. And right. the judge that he contacted Donald Bernardi 
took an interest in Sam's case. He read Sam's Afghanistan diary. He contacted the prosecutor and convinced the prosecutor to vacate Sam's sentence and let him plead to a lesser charge with a sentence of probation. And it all happened so quickly that Sam was confused when just one day he was let out. And it was May 19th of 2016, and Sam's mom went to go get him. He borrowed his mom's phone, and he called Ashley. And she knew that they were trying to get Sam out, but she had no idea that it was actually happening. So she saw Sam's number and thought it was just his mom kind of giving an update, but it was Sam. And he said, love. And she was just screamed like, oh, my God. She fell against the kitchen cupboard and curled up sobbing. And through the phone on the other end, she could hear Sam, who was crying too. Aww. So when he got home, it wasn't like – Everything was instantly better, you know, at first. Yeah. He was just sluggish sluggish and withdrawn. And Ashley and Sam both knew that it was going to be work. Like Ashley said, when Sam seemed withdrawn, she invited him for a walk. And then they walked around the block the first time. And then they walked a few more blocks. And things, but things were going well. He was sober. He was training at a gym. Um, and he and Ashley moved in together. But then there was an administrative error at the Department of Veterans Affairs that resulted in his disability pension being cut. So basically, he's like now he's a felon. He's on probation. He doesn't have any disability pension. And so he and he can't find work because of his felony conviction. So Ashley was Uh. determined not to let him fail. She knew Sam. She said he's a good man. And I'm she was like, I'm going to make this work for us. And so he was working hard on himself. He was getting better. And so she took a job where she tended bar from 4 a.m., like up until 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. every night. And she made enough in tips to pay for rent and to eat. But she would return home after sunrise every day, exhausted. She'd sleep much of the day and then go back to work. And she said, after a couple years of life as a 5 a.m. bartender, you're like a zombie. But Ashley said that Sam was worth whatever it took. She had loved him since she was 10 years old. (gasps) She knew he was ready and able to work to be worthy of the work she was putting in. And they just needed a chance. He just needed someone to like give him a chance at a job. And so then just this kind of like miracle happened where he got a break in the form of another judge. So this one whose guy's name, Justice Terrence Lavin, had a nephew who had died in Afghanistan. And when he read the New York Times articles about Sam's time in the war, about his conviction and his release, he felt like he needed to do something to help this kid. He felt like he owed it to his nephew. And so he contacted Sam and he asked him and Ashley to come meet him. And when they got there, they talked about how he was struggling to find work and how his disability pension had stopped. You know, he was like, I just don't have an income and I have no good plan. And he said to the judge, he said, I'm on a streak of bad luck. And the judge said, well, that's about to change. And he asked Sam, what do you need the most? And he said, what I really need is a chance at a job. And so the judge called this um, nonprofit that places veterans in skilled jobs in the building and construction trades. And he helped Sam get into a carpenter's union. So he began his course in the summer and by fall was starting to work. He was finally healthy. He was earning a living. And in September, Ashley and Sam were on a date. And Sam said, you know what? I think we should get married on Halloween. We can get dressed up. We love Halloween. It'll be fun. And Ashley was confused. She was like, you mean next Halloween? And he's like, no, this Halloween in a few weeks. And so she started screaming like right there in the restaurant, jumping up and down, kissing him and said, yes, of course, I want to marry you. 
So they called Justin Justice Lavin, and he agreed to officiate the wedding and hold it in his courtroom. They decided to have a small wedding, just family and the few people who had helped Sam along the way, including that retired judge and his lawyers who had helped get him out of jail. So on October 31st of 2017, they got married in a courtroom in Chicago. The judge talked about Sam's journey, but also about Ashley's. He called Aww. her a tiny giant of a woman and said she's not a quitter. He said when Sam was not all that communicative while he in battle in Afghanistan, she didn't give up. When he came back and was a more distant and remote kind of guy, she didn't give up. When he was convicted and imprisoned, she didn't give up. She kept on fighting for him and for them. So the night of their wedding, they celebrated with pizza with their families. The two were finally both in a good place. And Ashley said, we finally have a future. We got Sam set up. He's on the right track. And now it's my turn. And so I wish I had more updated information on these two. But, um, you know, they don't have social media. So they are entitled to their privacy. I know. Um, (laughs) But I just think it's like just an incredible story of fighting for a person and believing in a person and believing in your love story and um, just kind of a really heart-wrenching story of a kid who was sent to war and and what happened when he came back. So, but I just, I love these two and I hope, I hope, wish them all the best. So I know I just pictured that um, song, like I'll stand by you, (laughs) you know, like she just seems like the most amazing woman. And like, she really did stick it out and stand yeah. by him through like the hardest times and worked her ass off just to build him back up. What an amazing woman. Yeah. And That's I hope that long. like now that he is, he is on the right track that she does get her chance to figure out what she wants to do with her life. Cause at some yeah. point she said, you know, I even quit thinking like, what is it that I want? You know, she's just working all nights and trying to sure, make it work yeah. for him and trying to get him better. And so, so yeah, that's right. my love story. I love it. Me too. I love it. Okay, should we do something dumb, something I love? Uh, Yeah, you go first. Or something dumb, something we love. Um, Okay, (laughs) so for something dumb this week, um, I was just thinking about the fact that every year, me and um, Mike Albanese and Gilbert Lowen produce a comedy festival here in Atlanta called the Red Click Comedy Festival. Mm-hmm. And it would this would be the time of the year that we were like all in because it's supposed to be it was supposed to be October second and third, but this was canceled due to the COVIDs. Stupid so that COVIDs. Is dumb. It's but dumb. The good thing is we're doing something else. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how we got into this. But Mike Albanese and I are going to be doing a vegan pop-up Italian restaurant um, here in Atlanta. It's going to be at uh, the cafe at the Highland in October 2nd and 3rd. More details will be coming because that's all I have for now. But Please it's go. Good, it's, it's going to be, be amazing. fun and delicious. And if you like vegan food and if you like Italian food, you don't even have to be vegan. By yeah. the way – because another thing that I'm going to talk about in a second has to do with veganism. Here's the th- how I feel about being vegan. I don't care if you're vegan or not. Right. I'm not a preachy vegan. I don't care. It, veganism looks different to s- certain people. Some people are hardcore. Some people eat it mostly and then sometimes don't. I don't care what you do. I don't care what I do. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, that's just how I feel. So if you, just so you don't 
if, in case anybody thinks that I'm preaching the way of veganism or think that you should, I just think that do what makes you happy. And yeah. I'm like, not, it's none of my business. It's not my business. <laughs> so, but the other thing I want to talk about that has to do with veganism that I'm very excited about is my good friend, Dustin Harder, who is um, a famous vegan chef and the host of the Vegan Roadie show. He has a brand new podcast coming out. And um, by the time this airs, this will air on Monday. And then his podcast will premiere on Tuesday. But it's called uh, Keep On Cooking. And it's go and he's interviewing famous cookbook authors and they, where they dive into like the ins and outs of what of their cookbooks which I, i'm a huge cookbook nerd i love cookbooks so yeah. if you're into it too i just think that it's really fun and interesting he's so fun and he he's gonna be so fun to listen to i'm sure they're gonna have great conversations i'm very excited and i think you guys might like it too that's awesome i'm excited to listen to that for your soul yeah. So uh, those are my things. I love it. Okay. So my things are my dumb thing is my ants in my pants. Yeah, um, that was dumb. Just my thing that I love was that my brother came to visit. My brother Damien came to visit. Yeah. And it was so nice to see him. I really appreciate he took off work and came and he's so great with Max and he was so, so fun to be around him. And so it was just, that was my thing that I loved. It was just so nice to have, have my brother here. I'm glad you had a great time. Thank you. We did. Uh, You guys, that's our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Me too. I hope you'd... I hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you guys have any stories, please send them to us. I know we got a lot of feedback from our um, our love story we did last week that had to do about the pets. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Jess, for sending that in because it really did make an impact and a lot of people felt it in their hearts. Yes. Um, so um, And I think that it helps a lot of people. So you guys, if you have love stories or crazy stories, send them our way. We would love to hear from you. Here's the part where Sally says all the thing about our socials. You can send it to <laughs> sorry. <laughs> totally spaced out. Uh, you can send them to uh, dumblovepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at dumblovepodcast. Or you can find us on Patreon. Also, rate and review, guys. Rate and review. We'd love that. Yeah. Rate and review. Thank you guys so much for listening. We uh, dumb love you so much. And get out there and do something dumb for love. Dum da dum 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 da dum da dum da dum dum.